Well, good morning and welcome. And uh, for those of you who uh, are visiting with us, I want to say welcome. And you chose a doozy of a time to show up because we started a brand new series this morning called Kingdoms Come. The idea behind this series is we, what we're going to do over the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at world religions, but not just world religions, also philosophies. Because I've realized something as well. And actually, I was just having a conversation this morning with someone where they were saying, the world has shifted so much in such a short period of time. But the funny thing is, is that, yes, the world has shifted in a very short period of time, but it actually hasn't been a short period of time. What we're experiencing now has actually been decades in the making, and we're going to kind of maybe go back to, to the roots of that, but that's a different conversation. So this morning, we're going to start off by talking about this idea about belief, because I think it's important before we ask ourselves about what other people believe, we first have to ask ourselves, what do we believe? So if I said to you, where did your beliefs come from? Like, where do they actually come from? It's actually kind of an interesting conversation or actually an interesting question because oftentimes our beliefs come from a variety of sources, sometimes consciously, other times unconsciously. I came across some great articles on this I want to kind of go through here. Uh, first comes from Giles Fraser of The uh, Guardian. He says this, um, some of our beliefs we hold after conscious deliberation. Others just seem to have been there forever as a natural part of our life. And sometimes beliefs seem to take hold of us almost against our wills. But how is a balance struck? Faith positions, whether positive or negative, can take, um, take of these forms. They are careful, slow, rational conversations and losses of faith. They are sudden movements of enlightenment. And for some people, faith or lack of it is entirely taken for granted. So actually, it's funny. I was having a conversation with somebody a couple of days ago, and uh, they're the whole conversation of nature versus nurture. You know, how do, we, how do we become what we are? You know, are we just born this way or are we created this way? I have my own opinion. Uh, I don't have to tell you what it is, but there is actually kind of an interesting conversation. So one person said to me, uh, I remember having this conversation with an atheist uh, many years ago. I said, well, you know, of course people born in, in Western nations are Christians and people who are born in like other countries are, are going to be this religion. I said, well, that's interesting because I was born in another country and I was a Christian. So where do I fit in your paradigm of how the world looks? And I said, people being born in the Western countries are increasingly rejecting, rejecting Christianity. So your, kind of your neat little kind of package of how it works out is actually doesn't really work out as, as clearly as you think it is. Um, Anne Mercury of, uh, on Medium said this, a belief is a confirmation bias you think is true. I, I kind of like that idea. It's like, huh, that's actually kind of interesting. She goes on to say this. It's an ingrained mental habit, a pattern of thinking strong enough to condition your thoughts, your actions, and your life all on its own. You can hold beliefs that helps you to achieve your goals, live happier and healthier, feel more satisfied or loved or free or worthy, and you can hold ones that are create cycles of suffering and frustration. Beliefs impact you constantly in small ways and large, so you might as well get choosy about the ones you're going to keep. So what she was saying is that, you know what, your beliefs are actually conscious and you can actually make a decision about what you want to believe. She goes on to say this, for most of us, throughout most of our lives, most of our beliefs are unconscious. Some of our mental habits got ingrained before we even learned object permanence. Our beliefs are conditioned from infancy by our families, our culture, our society, our circumstances, our friends, our media, our everything. Your unconscious beliefs can come from anything. But what makes them unconscious is that they come from something other than you. Changing your beliefs is simple, so she says. But that doesn't mean it's easy. Being told to just change your beliefs can, deeply, can, be, uh, can feel deeply invalidating when your beliefs feel true for understandable reasons. So what she's saying 
is we can go through life with like a buffet of values and beliefs and just kind of choose what we like and reject what we don't like. I think that might be overly simplistic, but I like, what, I like where she's coming with it, right? Change what you believe, you'll change how you live. Actually, if you've been following us on, on our social media, Facebook and Instagram, uh, the question I've been asking about is, and the thing I've been thinking about is that your beliefs will kind of define what you become. So it's kind of important to kind of examine or re-examine what those beliefs actually might be. Another one, David Berliner says this, have you ever wondered how many contradictory thoughts you have in a day? How many times your thoughts contradict your actions? How often your feelings oppose your principles and beliefs? Most of the time, we don't see our own contradictions. It's often easier to observe such inconsistency in others, but you are so full of contradictions as I am. We humans are structurally made of contradictions living peacefully, sometimes painfully, with our oxymoronic selves. Humans live peacefully with contradictions precisely because of their capacity to compartmentalize. And when contradictory statements, actions, or emotions jump out of their contextual box, we are very good, perhaps too good, at finding justifications to soothe cognizant, uh, cognitive dissonance. I like this, right? So on the one hand, we all have beliefs, but uh, sometimes we don't realize that our beliefs that we hold, there's actually a bit of a tension between them. And I think as Christians, this one should actually make us kind of go, oh, okay, because sometimes we profess stuff, things, but we actually live very differently, and we'll unpack a little bit more about that. Um, this, this, this article that I was reading from, it actually was, it was more of an essay, uh, rem reminded me of a Walt Whitman quote, um, actually a poem from the Songs of Myself. Uh, it says this, do I contradict myself? Very well, then I contradict myself. I am large, I contain multitudes. Uh, I, I love that because what Walt Whitman, uh, again, Walt Whitman could be considered a postmodern poet before postmodernism actually came in, but what I love about this idea is that we are actually very contradictory in our beliefs. Like sometimes we think that we're, we're rational human beings. And everything we believe, it's made up of rational decision making. That's actually not true. And what we find is, is actually sometimes we think of beliefs as just mental assessments. But actually beliefs are actually tied to emotions. How do I know this? Well, great question. Uh, the biochemi uh, biochemistry of beliefs. This comes from the National Center for Biotechnology Information. Uh, I, you have to kind of think about this as a way of saying, you know what, we believe is not just simply, I believe this. But there's actually some emotions mixed into it. And this is what the uh, study came up with. This is this. Beliefs are not just cold mental premises, but are hot stuff intertwined with emotions, conscious or unconscious. Perhaps that is why we feel threatened or reacts with sometimes uncalled for aggression when we believe our beliefs are being challenged. Research findings have repeatedly pointed out that the emotional brain is no longer confined to the classical locales of the hippocampus, amygdala, and hypothalamus. By the way, I have practice saying those words, so you, know, you, you can clap later on. The sensory inputs we receive from the environment undergo a filtering process as they travel across one or more synapses, ultimately reaching the area of higher processing, like the frontal lobes. There, the sensory information enters our conscious awareness. Okay, a lot of gobbledygook, let me unpack this. What they're saying, and I think it's actually kind of important, is what we believe is actually tied to our emotions. And I actually think we see this happening in a wide variety of ways. Again, via social media or just even interactions and conversations. Like if someone says something, 
How could you believe that? How could you possibly think that to be true? And what's interesting is it's it's not like the spark. Oh, this is a very un, unlogical. Like it's a, a, actually this emotional piece of it. But that's actually how our brain works, is our brain actually ties our beliefs to our emotions. And I love what it says here is that there's uncalled for aggression. Well, that's basically the last five years in Western society. There's lots of uncalled for aggression based upon different beliefs. And if beliefs were just simply mental assessments, we would have a very different conversation. Well, that's a very un illogical statement you've just made, and I think you're nuts. And you can say that without the emotion. But see, when the emotion gets involved, we start denigrating the human being. We start denigrating the person. And just so you know, and as I've said before, this is also Christians. Right? We, have, we have so tied our beliefs with our emotions that we, get, we won't even realize it. They go on to say this, and this is actually kind of important. What portion of this sensory information enters is determined by our beliefs? Fortunately for us, receptors on the cell membranes are flexible, which can alter in sensitivity and conformation. In other words, even when we feel stuck emotionally, there is always a biochemical potential for change and possible growth. I like that. When we choose to change our thoughts, bursts of neurochemicals, we become open and receptive to other pieces of sensory information hitherto blocked by our beliefs. When we change our thinking, we change our beliefs. When we change our beliefs, we change our behavior. I kind of like that science ends up there. You know, it's kind of like, you know what? By the way, if you have an unhealthy belief, and this is also kind of where, uh, you know, therapies <laughs> was supposed to be, but like if you can examine a person's belief system about who they are and what they are, and you can kind of pinpoint how about kind of looking at like, by the way, this is really unhealthy or this is really toxic, and perhaps if you don't actually examine this closely, this is going to actually have repercussions in regards to your future relationships or health. And I, I think we all intrinsically understand this. But it's kind of, it's kind of nice that uh, science has kind of ended up there as well, too. So when we talk about this idea of beliefs this morning, and, and again, uh, one of the things I'm trying to do with this series, so I've taught world religions <laughs> a long time. But I haven't taught it in a number of years because for some reason it felt as if we ha I had to approach this topic in a different way. Because on the one hand, I don't want to be ethnocentric in the sense of saying, we, we don't want to look at another religion, and we don't want to look at it in a way that is um, insensitive to its cultural background. But yet, on the other hand, we still have to look at truth in a very empirical sense. And so what I'm going to try to do throughout this series is we're going to try to examine this in a way and kind of go, hmm, we want to make sure that we're looking at this, but also realizing, too, that we have to also be aware of other people's uh, belief systems as well. Um, when it comes to this idea of belief, what I love about uh, this idea of belief and unbelief is that the Bible does talk about this. There's this one, um, there's one passage of scripture I love. It's where Jesus comes to this, and this father is asking Jesus for a miracle, right? And what I love about it is Jesus says to this, this individual, if only you believe. And his response is a response that I think I consciously and unconsciously have. I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. Now, on the surface, this feels like a contradictory statement. Belief and unbelief, right? Walt Whitman, I contain multitudes. But what I think he's saying here, and I think what the Bible is really kind of highlighting here, is that he's saying, this, I do believe, I mentally believe, Jesus, that you can heal my daughter. But my unbelief is really this idea of change of behavior. Can I actually live as if this is true? Do you see the difference here? So oftentimes, we make mental assessments of like, this is what I think to be true. And this is also about our faith. This is also about Christianity. 
but does this actually change our behavior in regards to how we live and how we um, navigate ourselves through this world? And so that's actually kind of where we want to start off this morning, is just kind of talking about this idea of belief and unbelief. I, I would say to you this morning, as I kind of have been studying this topic a little bit, or a lot, uh, there is a crisis of belief in the church, but not in the traditional understanding of it. Our behavior is misaligned with our belief, and the world has noticed. The conclusion is that perhaps we actually don't believe what we have been professing. So one of the things that's interesting is that, like, we, we Christians have been talking about love, we've been talking about Jesus, we've been talking about truth, we've been talking about all these things for a long, long time. But somehow our behaviors and how we begin to live out this truth in the cultural context has been, and I use the word misaligned, just because it's an easier one to use, but really just the outright hypocrisy, the world is kind of noticed now. It, it, it's noticed. And that's what's interesting, and, and that's what's kind of fascinating to me, is that we haven't quite caught on to the fact that people are realizing that we say one thing, but we actually live out a completely different context. So before we study other religions, we have to admit a few realities, and that's what I want to do this morning, is I just want to kind of take a critical view of us first, because we have to do that just to be fair and honest. Because I don't want us to kind of going, wow, Here's what other people believe and kind of look at it in a way that's kind of derogatory or anyway um, not respectful. So before I can do that with, with an other belief systems, we have to first look at ours and kind of say to ourselves, there's a misalignment. We have to kind of address it a little bit. So on top of our unbelief problem, there's also another major issue, and that is we don't know our sacred document. And now I'm going to use the word sacred document because you want me to use the word Bible, but we're going to be looking at sacred documents all over the place. And so, as, so not to give the Bible a favorite view, I want to just call it a sacred document for this series because we're going to be looking at other sacred documents as well, too. And I want to acknowledge that. And so I want to say, I'm going to take our sacred document, what you would call the Bible, and I'm going to put it up against other sacred documents. I'm going to see where it lies out. And just so you know, the same focus I'm going to use upon other sacred documents to show inconsistencies or consistencies we're going to do the same thing with the Bible as well, too. Because, again, we have to be fair. We have to be equal. Or else, I, I, like, I don't want to rig this so that Christianity comes out on top. Because that's not how I roll. Um, this leads to many Christians allowing culture to dictate our interpretation. So what's interesting is that I, I encounter uh, Christians all over in, in my life today. And what's interesting to me is there is this posture amongst Christians that either goes one of two ways. One is the bully. And that's an individual who will say, they'll use the Bible as like, like kind of a hammer to hammer people into, into some sort of belief. But on the other side of it too, there's the, and I don't know the quite term to put it, so I'm just going to put the compromised. And that is, they allow culture to tell us what we believe. Just some statistics to kind of give you this idea of what, what, what's actually happening here. So there's something called the State of the Bible Survey. This is in America. And by the way, I did find some Canadian statistics, a little bit older, but still uh, equally horrifying. And so this kind of tells us about actually what do we believe. So the State of the Bible Survey, this is from 2022, says this. Scripture engagement is at historic low in America. Duh. Registering now at just 19% of American adults. The Bible disengaged category grew by 452 million adults in a single year. This is the single largest disruption in scripture engages ever recorded in the 12 years of conducting uh, the State of the Bible uh, survey. 
So what's, what's fascinating about this is that what they're noticing, which again, we've all kind of noticed, is that there is a, a, a huge difference between people who are Bible-engaged, and they go through this, and I don't want to unpack what that looks like, but basically, Bible-engaged for this particular survey, and this is kind of comical if you think about it, a Bible-engaged person is a person who reads the Bible two to three times a month. That's a Bible-engaged individual. For the survey, that's how they would classify it. And again, it's their survey. I'm not going to argue with them. But I would say to you, that seems a little light. But again, that's how they would classify it. In the past year, nearly 26 million Americans decreased or stopped interacting with the Scripture. And that's kind of interesting as well, too. I think this is the unintended consequence of the culture wars that we see unfolding all around us. Right? Where Christians are aligning Christianity with politics or with social movements. And as I've said before, I don't really care about your political views. I, I, I don't care about what you think to be uh, a better political party to choose from. That, that doesn't matter to me. You know why it doesn't matter to me? There is no political party that represents God. So with that, we go, okay, you have a political view, but it doesn't have to be your only identifying uh, trait. Now, the only one I could find for Canada was back in 2014. So apologies. Uh, this is the this is the most this is the most latest, uh, more comprehensive one I could find. As a port, uh, as a, as opposed to people just saying, well, you know, you know, Canadian Christians are biblically illiterate. That's fine, but I want some data. Okay. So in 2014, there's something called the Bible Engagement Study, and this is what it comes up with: just 14% of Canadians read the Bible at least once a month, uh, a month a month Canadian. I must have cut off a quote there, but uh, there you go. 14% of Canadians back in 2014 read the Bible uh, once a month. 64% of Canadians think that scripture, scriptures of all major world religions teach essentially the same things. Now, what's interesting about this is that one of the things that I have noticed as a pastor is that whenever, <laughs> whenever Canadian churches try to adopt American programs, there is this disconnect. And the disconnect is the Canadian context is vastly different than the American context. So when we try to import American A speakers, B culture, there's like a, it doesn't always kind of really kind of, you know, work itself properly because Canadians have a very different way. And what I think is interesting is that if I said to you 64% of Canadians think the scriptures of all major religions teach the same thing, I would say to you that that 64% in 2022 would be closer to the high 70s, maybe even the low 80s. So when you are talking about your faith, no one's going to argue with you. You know why? That's great for you. Good for you, little buddy. Good for you. Because why? They're all the same. How does Jesus then find a different voice in the midst of all that? Well, then the Canadian context is very different. And finally, 69% of Canadians think the Bible has irreconcilable contradictions. Do we have video? Um, do we have audio for this right now, Caleb? Hi. Sorry, didn't, don't mean to interrupt. Um, I, I'm going to show a video in my slide present presentation. Can you make sure we have uh, audio? Great. Um, so throughout this series, we're going to use TikTok. And the reason we're going to use TikTok is because TikTok is the largest uh, social media platform in the world. I actually had to text my daughter and say, hey, how do you download TikTok videos? And so I, I learned how to do it, much to your dismay. But uh, I want to show you a TikTok video that I came across. And the reason I came across it because it was, it was going viral. And when you type in one of the hashtags like ex-Christian or, or atheist, whatever, a whole wide world of craziness comes up. And I, I'm, I'm here for it. So I want to show you a video. 
and uh, hopefully we got volume here, so let's see if this works out. One of my favorite things about the Bible is how antiquated all the things that are supposed to take place in the future are already. How all the prophecies, how completely antiquated they are, because, you know, when the, when the Bible was uh, written and then rewritten, and then edited, and then re-edited, and then translated from dead languages, and then re-retranslated, and then re-edited, and then re-re-re-edited, and then re-translated, and then uh, given to kings for them to take their favorite parts out, and then re-edited, and then re-translated, and then re-edited, and then given to the Pope for him to approve, and then re-retranslated, then re-rewritten, then re-written, re-edited, re-translated, re-edited again, all based on stories that were told orally 30 to 90 years after they happened, to people who didn't know how to write. I can't get rid of that, so you have to advertise it. So what's interesting about this is this video was going viral. People were liking it and commenting on it and all of that. Now, just to be clear, the claims that the, the by the way, you may recognize the comedian. He was in Arrested Development and other ones. I love Arrested Development except for last season. Um, but like, like, he's not some nobody. He has a presence in Hollywood. And what's interesting about this is this video has gone viral on TikTok, and people are, 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 are commenting on it. And, and, and again, you heard the crowd. <laughs> yeah, of course, you stupid Christians. Don't you realize you're by? And it's like you look at that, and you're, you, you, you hear that, and you go. But so the interesting thing is, is Christians kind of go, oh, I didn't know that about my Bible. I know it was interpreted and re-edited and the Pope and a king and, you know, all this stuff, right? But see, the fact is, and we'll unpack this at a later date, but none of what he said is true. No pope, no king. And by the way, a dead language, that feels kind of insulting to Greeks and Hebrews. Because I learned uh, first century Greek, but I can actually read Greek because it's still spoken today. And Hebrew, well, I just go to Israel. Right? So what's interesting is that like, he makes these claims, culture makes these claims, Christians go, oh, yeah. I didn't realize our Bible was edited and re-edited in dead languages in 1690. None of that is true. And, and no historian, secular atheist or not, would, would give any credence to it. But that doesn't matter. You know why? This is what the culture says. And so Christians kind of go, oh, I didn't know that. And so we become very, very insecure. So what's interesting is, is that we have come to this point of biblical illiteracy where we allow culture to tell us what to believe. And we just kind of go, yeah, it must be the case because we ourselves don't know. And that's maybe the, the thing that you're going to come out of this series with, apart from a bit of a headache from all the information you're going to get. But it's, it's, you're going to realize that Christians have become either <laughs> – do you know, I, you know what I always find? That people are really insecure about something and become very loud about it. You ever notice that? Right? When something becomes – it has the uh, – uh, insecurity in their life, like, Rah! right? It's, it's because why? Insecurity, emotions, is attached to a part that we think is, is not as true. And so we just, we, we, we just, we amplify ourselves. And so Christians, I think, have this insecurity about our, our, our scriptures, about who we are, what we are, and how we navigate in a postmodern world. So we become very quiet. And I don't, the quiet part, I don't mind, but it's the allowing culture to tell us what our sacred document is or isn't. I do mind that, because again, that video there. Again, I could. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna watch more TikTok videos on church, which are like by th it's about time, really. But like, let's be honest, right? But uh, we're gonna be uh, as we look through the world religions, because again, this is how culture engages, and so it's it's, it's important for us to kind of see that and realize that. So 
after our misalignment of belief and behavior, after our realization that we do not understand or study our sacred document, see there's that word again, then comes what the world would say is our arrogant posture. So what I've tried to do is, I've, as I've been talking to people leading up to the series, some of the questions I've been asking them is like, hey, what bugs you about Christians? What bugs you about Christianity? And the good news is I actually now have two contexts whether it's the Rave Hope or my other job, uh, that where I get to kind of have these conversations and people are actually just like, yeah, let me tell you. I'm like, good, I want to hear this, right? And this one here kind of came up to the top of the list too. So what's interesting about Christianity is Christianity has this exclusivity and it's embedded in our passage of scripture, right? When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's kind of offensive to a Muslim, Buddhist, Tom Cruise, like, like, I, like, I, like, I don't know who, who, who else, or, you know, like, you get the idea, right? Like, this would be kind of an offensive statement. And actually, if you look at first century Christianity, one of the reasons why Christians were killed as much as they were is because they wouldn't just get along. See, Romans and Roman culture loved religions. They loved religions. There were thousands of religions in the Roman culture. But there was only one who would not play nicely with everybody else. Christians. You can have your Christianity, but just take this piece of bread and, and place it at the foot of the, of the uh, statue of the emperor. And then, and then we'll let you, we'll, we'll, we won't bother with you anymore. This posture of exclusivity is really what got Christians really in trouble in the first century. But throughout history, and even today, where Christians still hold this view, and there are many Christians who don't, and we'll talk about that in a second, this is actually still something that kind of bugs people. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind which we must be saved. That's a very exclusive statement. That's a very, very exclusive statement. But it doesn't actually just happen in the New Testament. Back in the book of the Old Testament as well, too. Deuteronomy chapter 18. Remember, this is, this is the people of Israel coming out of uh, Egypt, about to go into the promised land. Deuteronomy is this kind of heavy teaching in the middle. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 9. When you enter the land the Lord as God has given you, do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. That's not very uh, nice, is it? It's not very get along. Like, don't you want to make sure you want to respect Canaanites? And you know what? If Canaanites want to prostitute children, that's their problem. And, and sacrifice babies? Come on. Who are you to tell them that's wrong? Right? The exclusivity of Christianity was part of Israel's identity. And again, Exodus chapter 20, which is, by the way, the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. Oh, by the way, that's number one. God starts off with an exclusive statement. So exclusivity is something that has bothered people about Christianity. And just want to show you a couple of uh, quotes about this. Huffington Post, Terrence Thomas says this, to, to suggest that one out of 4,200 religions holds all of the truth and the key to salvation is not only arrogant, it is spiritually narcissistic. Just so you know, I actually kind of agree with him on this. It is kind of arrogant or narcissistic for us. Ah, maybe not narcissistic, but it is kind of arrogant for Christians to say there's only one way. Hillary Clinton. A lot of young people are leaving the church in part because the way they understand what Christianity has become. So judgmental, so alienating, they think to themselves, well, I don't need that. The reason I, I, I have Hillary Clinton's quote there um, is just not because, well, there's a whole bunch of reasons why I have it in there, but She's actually right. When you look at the surveys of young people and why they leave the church, she's not wrong here. 
right? Like, like a broken clock can be right twice a day. And, and, and she, she's not wrong here, okay? She's not wrong. When you look at, the, at all the reasons why when youth graduate out of, uh, of high school into uh, university, and according to studies, 75% of youth who leave a youth group will no longer attend church and university. One of the reasons why they say, well, my experience with Christianity, my experience with how I understand it, it's judgmental and it's alienating. And when you go to university, and for those of you who are in university who have gone to university, you understand. You're on a campus where people have a like, wide variety of beliefs. How do you as a Christ follower say, by the way, y'all are wrong. It's intimidating. Because then the next question is, well, prove it. And that's where you kind of go, mm. Right? So this is, the exclusivity of Christianity is a problem. On the bottom of the screen there, it's the Jesus and. And this is where Christians actually are starting to compromise what they, who they are and what they are because we just want to get along. Right? We just want to get along. And so the Jesus and concept comes through in a, uh, in, in a whole bunch of different ways, whether it's Jesus and entertainment, Jesus and, you know, uh, like all religions, Jesus. And, and again, we're going we're gonna to take a look at how some churches, some movements have adopted the Jesus and. And, and, and how is that working out for them? And, and we'll take a look at that. I, I don't want to leave that off as, as a depressing one. There's a guy named Derek J. Brown has a great quote on this, and I like what he has to say about this. He says this, Christ is narrow in location but broad in invitation. There are no restrictions based on a person's economic status, religious background, relative morality, geographic location, or family circumstances for all are called to come to Christ. You know what's going to be interesting here? As we look at other religions, you're going to find something very interesting about Christianity. What you're going to find about Christianity is the invitation to follow Christ is exactly what he says here. And when we look at other religions to follow their deities or to follow along their religions, you actually have to take other aspects of you and, 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 and submit them to these other religions. People say to me all the time that Christianity is very narrow and very all that. I said, yes, but the invitation is broad. And have you ever thought about this religion and what you have to do to follow this religion? this God, or about how about this one? See, a lot of times people are, are talking not out of what they know, but more out of ignorance of what other religions say. And again, like I said, in the Canadian context, well, all religions are the same. You can say that because you've never studied other religions. Because just so you know, that's not just deeply offensive to Christians. It's kind of defense, uh, that's kind of offensive to every other religion. Because no other religion, just so you know, believes this. No other religion believes that everybody's right. And that includes Baha'i, who basically grabs everything except for, yes, you guessed it, Christianity. Which I think I, I love, you know. Because I, I talked to uh, uh, a Baha'i individual a while ago about their uh, founder, Baha'u'llah. That's actually his name. And, um, well, not his real name. But anyways, we'll get to that when we get to there. But again, Baha'i is the absorption of all these other religions. But you know what religion they can absorb? So they reject? It's Christianity. Again, why? Exclusivity. So we've looked at so far the misalignment. We've looked at the sacred document. And then we looked at the exclusivity. These are, these are three aspects, I think, of Christianity that really bump culture. But what have I said to you? Because it was brought up in the TikTok video where, uh, where he says that, you know, well, the prophecies in the Old Testament 
when they didn't really come true or they're so ancient, they don't even make any, 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 any truth. Now, just to be clear, you, not, you have heard me say this before. I don't think Christians really handle prophecy very well in the sense of like, you know, saying this particular leader or this country is this thing in the Bible. We've, our track record, by the way, is atrocious. We're like zero for zero, I think, at this point in time, okay? Like we have, we have not, whether it's Y2K or whether it's this president or that country or the European Union, we, we're almost zero for zero, really. So that's, um, in, in that particular part, I'm actually pretty sympathetic. But what have I said to you that part of what's happening right now in Christianity in the world is actually prophesied? Let me show you. Two particular passages of scriptures, I'm going to show you that. One is Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24 is this incredible chapter, and I, I really encourage you to go read the whole thing together. But basically, Jesus is saying to his disciples, what will happen? Now, fun fact, a lot of what Jesus prophesies in Matthew 24 is, will already have taken place by the first century, end of the first century. But one thing that's interesting about this is Jesus says this in, verse, in verses 10 to 12. He says, at that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. Now, what's interesting here is who is Jesus talking about here? See, Jesus, and, and one of the things people don't realize is when Jesus talks about this, he's talking about Christ followers. This prophecy is for us. Because there can't be a false prophet to people who don't believe in prophets. There can't be any of this to people who don't actually adhere to this, right? So when Jesus is talking about this, he's actually talking about us. And right now, I will say to you that Christianity today, it's a bit of a mess. It's kind of a mess, right? It's kind of this idea of like, well, like who do we believe or who do we listen to and, 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 and all of this? Like how do we come, how do we do this, right? Well, the fun thing about this is, and fun but I mean horrifying, is Jesus said this is actually going to happen. But what I love about this is Jesus kind of has this kind of proportionality to it, right? Wickedness increases, well, love becomes cold. Now, if you ever ask yourself why that's the case, and this is, this is like a whole sermon series in and of itself, but when we live for pleasure, when we live for ourselves, we stop being able or capable of helping other people. If all your resources that you have go to yourself, well, how, how can you help anybody else? How can you serve anybody else? How can you lay your life down for anybody else if everything's for yourself? Right? So Jesus says this in Matthew 24. Paul picks up in 2 Timothy. He says this, For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And again, I don't think Paul's incorrect in this. Because what is happening right now amongst Christianity? There are people within Christianity who are saying things that I would say to you would be contradictory to the gospel. But these people have really big churches. They have really big uh, influence and affluence in the culture. And again, mostly American, and that, that should be no shocker. Right? But like, this is happening. So when we see this kind of stuff, we go, well, wait a minute. Is this supposed to happen? And it's like, well, actually, yeah, it's kind of supposed to happen. So let's take all of this now we've looked at. Pretty depressing so far. And let me introduce you a term called post-Christian. And this is what I think we are seeing now today. We are seeing a splintering of what Christianity looks like. Post-Christian, and I, I want to give you there's four aspects of this, is this. 
um, someone whom Christians would say is not a Christian, but whom non-Christians would consider Christian. This is actually kind of true. I've actually encountered these individuals all over the place where they would deny the, 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 what I would say the core tenets of Christianity would be, but would still call themselves Christian. But because they get along, they have the Jesus and, most people go, yeah, that person's a Christian. And we as Christians are kind of going, not so much. But like, okay, I understand why. This is the first idea of post-Christian. The second one is uh, one who tries to live according to Jesus' teaching, but who chooses to distance himself, herself, from conservative or fundamentalist Christianity by refusing to be called Christian. I'm pretty sympathetic to this one as well. Because oftentimes when I have a conversation with somebody, when they use the term Christian, it's like a curse word. It's like they spit it out of their mouth. Christians. So then I have to have this you know, conversation like, hey, what does the word Christian mean to you? Wow, okay. Right, remember I said this to you? Someone asks you, are you a Christian? Don't ever say yes or no. Ask them what they mean. Oftentimes, in order to be able to navigate into the world that we live in, the thing that we have to do, the first thing we need to do is define terms. And the reason we have to do that, and that takes kind of a pre-conversation because oftentimes people are using or going under false information about what a Christian means. Because again, culture would say, well, a Christian is judgmental. Okay, let's unpack that. Christians are hateful. Okay, or Christians are align themselves with this political party. Or Christians are, are, are colonialists. Or, or they're, like, again, all these terms get thrown out, and you have to take the time to, uh, and the opportunity to kind of go, I see that. Okay, let's unpack that, and let me show you why that might not be a true understanding of what it looks like. Number three, in certain cases, a non-theist or atheist who follows the ethical teachings of Jesus. I've met these individuals. And I would say that perhaps number two becomes number three after a while. So there's a guy named uh, Bart Campolo. You may have heard of him because his father's name is Tony Campolo. Bart Campolo was an evangelical preacher. Bart Campolo is now an atheist. Bart Campolo now has created, this is a number of years ago, mind you, but the first atheist church. Why? Because his understanding of, of faith and all that was under church context and evangelical context. But if you don't believe in God anymore, what do you do? Well, you create an atheist church. And there's all these articles about what he's done and all that. It's from a number of years ago. But again, number two becomes number three. Because after a while, you realize, you know what? I don't need to go to church. I don't even need to that. Like, I just want to be a good person. And I love this fact when people say, you know, Christianity, you know, is about being a good person. Because, again, even Jesus asked the uh, tax collector, the, the, the young rich ruler, why do you call me a good person? What's a good person to you? That's where you have to define terms. And number four, an individual who resembles Christians sociologically but do not hold Christian theological beliefs. This is the 1950s. 1950s, to be a Christian was to be part of culture, and it would be okay to be called Christian. Again, those, that number four is like a very, very small minority, and they are older. right? And they are part of a, you know, a mainline church, uh, church context. So let me wrap up by showing you three quotes. Because these three quotes, pretty much, I could just start off with unpacking these three quotes and really show you how everything that we're talking about kind of falls into these three quotes. First quote comes from G.K. Chesterton. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. 
oftentimes when I'm having a conversation with an individual who is so against Christianity, the reason why they have such a visceral reaction to the term Christian is because they've encountered somebody who I would say perhaps did not exemplify Jesus as well as they could have. And I'm just being nice, and I never am nice, okay? So what I have to do is I have to help them to understand that this individual, as well-meaning as they were, when they said this or did this or acted in this way, it wasn't probably to the ideals of Christianity. I find out, I find more and more that the inauthentic Christian does more damage to Christianity than anything else. And I have to come calling. And again, please hear me very clearly. I don't know if I'm the unauthentic Christian, but I'm at least aware enough saying, okay, let's, let's unpack that. What do they say or how did this happen or what took place? And I think what Chesterton says is true. Christianity and in, in, in its ideals according to the gospel, that individual to me is a person who goes into the world with humility and love and compassion. Doesn't expect the world to live by the Bible because they don't uh, recognize our sacred document as being true and has different conversations. And, 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 has, and that misalignment we've been talking about constantly doesn't exist for them, not because they're perfect. Did you know, I find that an authentic Christian, if they have a blow up or get angry or say something or do something stupid, there's a lot more grace for them for people who know that they're that because their consistent value and behavior is authentic. And when I say authentic, I don't mean you, you, you float three feet off the ground and you, know, you, 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 you quote scripture every two seconds, but you know what I, I <laughs> how do I say this? Um, I have never had a problem with non-Christians. And actually, people who are not Christians, I know you might find this hard to believe, but they like me. One of the reasons why I've shifted what I've been doing over the last few months, talked a little bit about it to you, is because one thing I've realized is I just need to be amongst non-Christians. Because I love having conversations with them. You know why? I kind of know how to have these conversations with them. And Starting off the conversation isn't about, let me tell you what I believe. It's more an invitation to tell me what you believe. And earning their respect and their trust by showing them it can be a safe place to talk about these type of things. And so whether I'm at the Rave Hope or I'm at Apple, I'm having these really wild and crazy and great conversations, but I like it. You know why? I try as much as possible when I'm given the opportunity, it's not always all the time, but to redirect people towards what a more authentic Christian may look like. And I may not always al align myself with that ideal, but if I you know, lose my temper or if I you know, say something off-handed off that may be, you know, which by the way with me, you know, um, that happens all the time, guess what? They don't care. You know why? Their expectation was not to be perfect because first thing I say to them is I'm not perfect. Oh, okay, well then let's go from there. Second quote, Galadriel. This is, I think, I, what I love about The Lord of the Rings was when Tolkien was writing it, it was an allegory for him about the state of Christianity. I want to show you something here. So this is the Galadriel. Some things that should not have been forgotten were lost. History became legend. Legend became myth. And for, what, two and a half thousand years, that's an interesting usage of the time frame. The ring passed out of all knowledge. For Tolkien, this idea of the rings of power were this idea of, of, of power or, 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 or magic or supernatural power. Now, please understand something. I don't mean to stretch this too far, but between Lewis and Tolkien, uh, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and Lord of the Rings, both 
individuals are kind of saying, okay, they were using these, the, the worlds that they created as allegories for Christianity. And what I love how Tolkien looks at it, though, is he says, listen, Christians have forgotten what they should not have forgotten. And because of that, it's, this, 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 this truth has been lost. And so what we believe to be the Bible, we think is now legend, and some Christians has become myth, and now it's no longer even relevant anymore. I think that's absolutely true. And the last quote. You know, Nietzsche is one of my favorite writers, not because I agree with him, but because I think he's the most honest of all atheists. Well, people would call Nietzsche an existentialist, but that's, that's just mincing words, really, in my opinion. Nietzsche never said, fun fact, God is dead. Nietzsche never said God is dead. It's attributed to him, but that's not what he said. If you go back and you read Nietzsche's writings, and I have, what Nietzsche actually said was, what happens when God dies? Because Nietzsche understood something that the rest of culture didn't understand, is that when you remove the gravitational force of the morality of Christianity, which has been the underpinnings of Western culture for hundreds of years, when you remove that, well, what do you replace it with? I would say to you, and I know it sounds kind of weird, but Nietzsche was prophetic because that's exactly what culture is dealing with now. We've removed Western Christianity, whatever that looks like to you, We've removed the ethical, moral standards and the spiritual and transcendence of it. And now our culture is now competing for what should replace it. For some, it's politics. For others, it's entertainment. For others, it's like this view and the environment or wh whatever it might be. And again, you could pick like almost like literally, you know, hundreds of things that you could replace it with. But this is what culture is dealing with right now. We look at the world and go, I don't know what's going on. Well, I'll tell you what's going on. A vacuum has been created because Nietzsche was right. What happens when you remove God from the equation? Well, humanity's got to fill that void because this is what we are. So Nietzsche says this, and one of my favorite quotes of his, it is our preference that decides against Christianity, not arguments, because Nietzsche was smart enough to understand something. Apart from what Neil deGrasse Tyson says, and by the way, I'm going to go after him because he really bugs me. Um, but apart from all these, what these atheists said, whether it's, uh, <clears throat> again, we'll, we'll talk about them. When they say, well, you can't prove God exists. Just so you know, the whataboutisms is the dumbest argument ever. Well, you can't prove God exists. Well, why would that even be a part of the equation of the conversation? You just point to me what God exists, and, I, and, I, and, I, and then I'll believe. First of all, no, you wouldn't. But second of all, is that really the, the approach we have towards this? What I love about Nietzsche here, and what I love about this statement is this, is that he realizes that oftentimes we create a religion about what we prefer as opposed to what is true. And this is what Nietzsche really understood about the human condition, is that we will be gravitating towards what we prefer not based upon arguments. Again, remember that whole idea of rationality? We think we're rational beings. We're not. And sometimes our, the pleasure principle, the hedonic treadmill, all the things we've talked about here at UCC, that's our new religion. And I would say to you that apart from politics, environment, and, and all that, I think the true religion of Western society is entertainment now. That's really the true religion. Which, by the way, is kind of funny if you think about it because the most narcissistic, vain, insecure, dumb population, they're the ones telling us what to believe now. 
bravo, this is going to be fantastic, right? So this is what we're looking at. So as we're going to look at the series, there's going to be three questions we're going to ask of all, three, uh, all the religions and philosophies that we're going to look at. And the first thing we're going to ask at, we're going to ask is, what do you believe? The second thing we're going to ask is, why do you believe? And the third thing we're going to ask is, how do you believe? And the reason we're going to take this three matrixes and apply it to each religion is because when we apply these three questions to each religion, it's going to be interesting what comes out of it. Because when we ask, what do you believe? We're going to look at the tenets of the religion, right? The other question we're going to ask is, why do you believe? One of the things when you study re religions, one of the things people say about religion is religion is a way for us to be able to um, uh, make sense of the world. And I think that's actually true, right? Religion is a type of worldview by which we filter and make sense of the world. And I think the why do you believe is actually going to be kind of important. Because some religions, as we look at them pretty closely, they don't actually give the why. And finally, how do you believe? And this, what this means is simply, what does the religion expect of you? How do you play this out? What is the practicality of what this religion asks? Now, last slide, let me close. One of the things I think about when I think about Christianity, when I think about faith, is this reality that when, when God gives us, when he reveals himself to us, there's a part of it that we realize that, you know what? I wouldn't have done it that way. Right? So Genesis chapter 1 and 2. This gets Christians in a whole bunch of trouble. Because what we're trying to do here is we're trying to figure out, well, how did the world come together? How, did the world, how was the world made? But again, Genesis chapter 1 and 2 written by Jewish people who don't care about the methodology that, the, um, that Latin would care about, doesn't care about the philosophy that the Greeks would care about, but instead care about the story. And so how, the, how do they convey it? In the beginning, God created. And everything else after that is, is not as important to them. It's just, what's the starting point? It's God, right? So when I think about how the Bible is revealed to us, part of me kind of goes, well, Lord, I would like to have a recipe for the atom in there somewhere. And maybe some kind of cool stuff about, you know, like that would be kind of really interesting, right? That would help us to do it, right? But what I love about how God reveals himself to us is there's equal amounts of doubt that can be given to us as opposed just to faith. Because I want a religion or I want a faith that leaves no room for doubt. Wouldn't that be amazing? But see, the thing that God loves most about humanity is something that we kind of hate about ourselves. And that's our free will. That's our ability to choose. And when we see this idea of when God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, we kind of go, I know, Lord, but like, like, I just wish you wouldn't make the Bible so hard to understand. Or I wish you would make the Bible easier for white people to understand. Or I wish the Bible would be more easier for, uh, you know, uh, Western society. or po like, I just, and, and God's like, you know what? I'm glad you didn't write it. And he's right. But the Bible is written in such a way so that it invites the person to interact with the content. But also to reject it. Because what is most important to God, what is most important about faith to him, is the relational aspect of it. The ability to accept and or reject it. As, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And what I love about this passage from the prophet Isaiah is because Isaiah is called to really live out in a very difficult time in Israel's history to be a man of God, be a person of God. And while his people, his culture are rejecting Yahweh all over the place, 
Isaiah's got to stand up and he's got to say, look, this is not what God intended. It's not what Yahweh expects of us. And people will have their response. As we study other world religions, as we study other philosophies, which we are going to look, we're not just going to be looking at world religions. Like One of the, ones, one of the things we're going to be talking about is just is atheism, because we have to. Because we have to look at what the tenets of atheism are, where it kind of comes from, and, and, and you know, its origins, just so you know it. It does have origins, and there are some, some thinkers behind it that you, if you get to know where they're, where they're coming from, you're like, oh, kind of makes sense, actually. We're going to look at all these, these, we're gonna look at all these things, and we're going to put them together, and we're going to say to ourselves, okay, with these ideas in mind, with these type of uh, philosophies in mind, what makes the most sense about the human condition? Because in my opinion, what I want most from God is a way to understand this world in, in, in its reality. Like, I want us to deal with reality on reality's sake. And you'll see that one particular religion, which I won't name now, but it doesn't deal with reality on reality's sake. So it's, it's, like, it's like, I don't even know what's going on here. Christianity, I've said this before, and I'll just say it right again to this morning. Even if you could prove to me that God doesn't exist, I still think Christianity makes the most sense. Even if there, you could, you could prove to me beyond a shadow of a doubt, which I don't know how you could, I'd still be a Christian. There is no other religion in the world that seeks the betterment of others and ourselves than Christianity. And by the end of the se this series, I would think I will have proved that. Because all the other religions have been tested, have been tried, and we get to see the results. And that's what we're going to be looking at. This series is going to help you as Christ followers, I think. This series is going to help you, perhaps, I, I, I acknowledge that in this room right now, there are people who are struggling with their own belief. Perhaps you're not even a Christian. Perhaps you're a skeptic. You're like, I used to be a Christian, or I was so hurt by the church, I was so hurt by Christianity, that I'm on the verge of rejecting it. I acknowledge that as well, too. You know why? That's, that's the reality of where we are right now. This series is going to help. This, series might be, this might be a, a series that you may want to invite people to be a part of, because I know I have the conversation people are like, well, you know, prove to me Christianity is, is true. Well, this series is going to do that. But not in the way I'm going to rig the results for Christianity. We're going to look at each religion in an unflinching, honest, empirical way. And then it's going to tell us whether we should believe it or not. And I'll leave it up to you to see what that looks like. This series is going to be, and again, I know I say this, but it's going to be kind of fun. But I also will say to you, I'm going to pull some punches in the sense that I'm going to try as much as possible to be respectful. Because I think that should be the underpinning of all our conversations. It's, it's, it's respectful. Honest, but respectful. Because I don't want to be ethnocentric to look at some other cultures and say, wow. Instead, let's just we'll, we'll deal with reality and reality's sake, and we'll see what comes at the end of it. Let's pray.